Hello, and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I know a lot of you enjoyed Captain Jim Hutton, ex-Royal Marines, and Jim's inspiring leader that he recommended was Rob Metcalf, who joins us now from Australia. And uh, I'm very grateful to him for making uh, this time as it's morning for me and it's the other time of the day for for, for Rob. Um, Rob has had a fascinating career. He's going to talk more about it later on. But, um, you know, being in close observation platoons in South Armagh, being in the Falklands uh, during the war there, um, with working with Five Airborne, um, which was a, a fascinating time with uh, Sir Peter Wall, um, a whole variety of different jobs. And also now leadership is his, it's always remained his big things. Could be talking about proactive versus reactive leadership and, and also the support he gives to the World Food Programme. Um, in dodgy places like Somalia and Iraq and the kind of places that uh, and talking about Syria that you wouldn't want to go but uh, he's been to some very interesting places without further ado Rob welcome tell us a bit about what you're doing right now yeah thanks so much indeed I'm just uh, preparing to go off on a world food program adventure but delighted to be here with you Jonathan I'm at a stage of life where I'm able to uh, and I'll use this expression later on probably but I'm able to uh, uh, do whatever I want, but know what I'm doing. Whereas for <laughs> life, I did whatever I wanted, but I had no real idea what I was doing. <laughs> I like that one. I haven't gone across that one. Well, I'm in a place, I stole it, by the way. It's not my original thinking. Um, so at the moment, I've got uh, a lovely way of life. I'm helping uh, support somebody who I mentored a little bit when he was a bit younger, who was won a, um, a, a large contract with the World Food Programme. So I spend a significant amount of my time with, uh, with that organisation supporting him. Uh, it gives me great pleasure. I also have a small influence over the two organisations that uh, span off out of an organisation I founded in 1995 and retired as the CEO, I think, in 2014. So some time ago now. So I'm one of those lucky people who um, who kind of pleases myself what I do, but has maintained my interests in those organisations that I founded. And loving my contacts with the Royal Marines, which I had the recent opportunity to uh, reacquaint myself with them and others, because I've been living in the UK for the last three years. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. Australia. Yeah, well, look, I mean, it is interesting. The Royal Marines has been a big part of your life, uh, those 14 years. It, it sort of... Uh, a number of the guests that I've had, whether it's Parachute Regiment, Royal Marines, SAS or Navy SEALs, that, you know, the the impact of being an elite force does have a long lasting positive impact, uh, as well as when you've seen some shocking stuff that comes back, as we'll talk about later on in health and well-being. But what, what do you think was the big thing, having been a Royal Marine officer, what was the big thing that stays with you now as you teach leadership? Maybe you want to talk about proactive versus reactive leadership as well, but but what was it that that superb selection and training taught you that you you still use now, Rob? Yeah, look, I think um, many, many things. The 
belief I have, and I think the world is now ready for it, which is an important point. It wasn't really ready for it when we first started talking about it in 1995, is uh, what would you go? Leadership at every level is a simple way of explaining it. So I think what we were blissfully unaware of at every level in the Royal Marines was that we were able to lead ourselves in spite of the way in which we were led. Um, so in other words, if your boss was not particularly good, then the system of leadership enabled one to step in and somebody would be able to make, um, to follow the battle procedure that meant in spite of the way in which you're led, um, then you can still lead yourself and get yourself, you know, seize the moment. Uh, at every level, at every rank. So I spend my life trying to introduce a system of leadership to organisations that enables that, whilst fully developing the individual. So for me, it's a bit of a paradox. It's how do you have the doing element, which we command. There is no option. We do, we do leadership this way with simple tools and simple models. Yet for you as an individual, we want you to flourish and we really want you to develop. And I think... The Marines was just fabulous in doing that. That's a kind of macro view. Mm -hmm. But the micro, I think anybody who finds themselves in extreme circumstances learns to love in a quite different way to the conventional meaning of love. So um, I recently met my troop that uh, I worked with in Falklands, and there was a deep, deep bond there that came out of that experience and all the experiences we'd had together that preceded it. And I think I've seen the same thing with the mining communities in Australia. I've seen the same thing with um, small groups of people who work on difficult things together, become mm. intimate in a way that is uh, difficult to mimic if you don't have similar circumstances to forge it. Yeah. And, and I'm right in thinking that you were with the headquarters and signal squadron during the Falklands War. What were the... the um the inspiring leaders who really stood out for you, what what qualities did they have and did they show in time of war? And everybody sort of imagines that everybody involved in the military must be really great, but there are some poor leaders. And without naming them, what did the worst leaders do that, um, you know, you'd say do not do what they did? Uh, what, what, would, what stuck in your mind about the good and the bad? Yeah, interesting question. So um, there was certainly the ability to think, now, not a trivial point. So um, I'll share an equation which came out of a book by a guy called Vern Harnish, Scaling Up. Stimulus, stimulus equals response is the way most people operate. And it's probably the way I was operating. So for example, middle of the night on the top of Mount Kent, um, what we thought was artillery fire came in it turned out later that it wasn't artillery fire. The weather was just so awful you couldn't differentiate between artillery and a bomb that's just been dropped out of the back of a Hercules. Um, so I had a stimulus and a response. So I went sprinting off to, to a CP and I informed people that a bomb had just landed very close to us. Um, and the question, the, the, the response was pretty much, well, well, I heard it, so what? Um, and I thought, well, really good. I've just moved my guns forward to the forward slope of the position. That's what we needed to do. But there was the ability to have that same stimulus that I'd received, but it was between the stimulus and the response from that individual, there was a pause. There was some thinking. And in that thinking lies freedom. So very difficult to do under circumstances of extreme hardship, which they were. I mean, it was cold. It was wet. It had been for many days, if not weeks at that point. 
Uh, but I thought it was just a, a very interesting piece of leadership on reflection to see somebody who was able to think when clearly I was just responding. Mm. I was being re- being reactive. That's a good example, and there were many, many, many. I watched um, Brigadier Thompson as he then was. Mm. What was he and, like? No, uh, he was lovely. He just, I mean, genuinely lovely. Always calm. Never saw him rile fully capable of taking command, but very, very human. And my job was to um, surround all of his CPs, all of his, all of his command posts and all of his rebroadcast stations and to protect him. And he was appreciative, uh, mm. very appreciative of all of that. But but the ability to think, always thinking, mm. uh, making decisions because of that, that I think proved later on to be highly rational and very effective. On the other side, there was one example where I'd already lost a little bit of faith and uh, no names, no pack drill. But I went into a meeting, just a one-on-one meeting, turned out to be a two-on-one meeting, and two people were drinking a bottle of scotch that they'd acquired from somewhere. These are commanders, and it clearly wasn't wasn't a full bottle of scotch. Mm. (laughs) That lesson myself as a young troop commander returning from Ireland to say, you know, keep your distance. But that was a pretty shameful example of conduct when it just simply wasn't available to anybody else and wholly inappropriate to do that and didn't lose respect for that person briefly and I lost it pretty well permanently um mm. small things small signals that we send that are inconsistent with what's expected it, show it, your values. It, it's exactly that Rob and uh, one of the leaders I worked with had a little um, mnemonic TNT and and they said it's the tiny noticeable things and you had there were tiny noticeable things but they made a massive difference and the message they sent please do use it i i shamelessly use it uh, it one of the it was one of the the board members at asda um it's just what are the tiny noticeable things that that the signals you give out that that really stay with people now also i'm fascinated with every guest i have um with kind of um the inspiring leaders that you want to mention i think we briefly talked about uh, general sir peter wall and andy keeling um but it might be others but who who would be the ones that you'd want to call out that you think should share their story in a very inspiring you find yeah look i think we have inspiring moments don't we and it's hard to experience the whole of somebody's leadership so i'm just going to talk about moments that i found very inspiring from various people uh, I won't start off with either of the people you mentioned. I'm going to start off with a, a lady called Sheena Porter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sheena. 14 years, and Sheena was my boss and owner, co-owner of uh, a business then known as the Oxford Oxford Training, became later on the Oxford Group. Um, and she inspired me with the following words on day one. She said, Rob, my job is to liberate you of me as fast as possible. And I thought, that's an interesting way to start a meeting. And she might deny even saying that, but I can promise you that she did. And she said, the way I'm going to do that is to ask you questions. Um, And I will always ask you the same questions. And the questions are these. What are you trying to achieve and why? What is happening right now? What are the facts? And what are you going to do about it? Well, those three questions formed the basis of my philosophy of leadership, even though it was deeply embedded in military thinking as well. Nobody had put it so simply before. 
Uh, lo and behold, in meeting two, she asked me those questions, having agreed our objectives in the first meeting. And I was working pretty hard to answer those questions um, and very quickly learned that the expectation was that I answered those questions before I walked into the room. Hence my desire to say you can lead in spite of the way in which you are led if you ask the right questions of yourself, not by accident, but as a deliberate practice. Um, Consciously or subconsciously, I think that's what that guy when the bomb dropped would have been doing. And that is what General Thompson was doing all the time. What are we trying to achieve and why are we trying to achieve it? So just for those listening and and for my benefit as well, I like that, Rob. What are you trying to achieve and why? And then at yeah. the end, what are you going to do about it? What was the, there was another one, a third uh, question. Where are you now? So where are you where, now? where are you now? Yeah, what are the facts? So one of Sheena's little expressions was be tough on the facts and open on the reasons um be tough on the facts open on the reasons was it a bomb was it a piece of expenditure you needed to expend so part of what she did was that and then she did it so there's a lot of leadership in there she said this is what i'm going to do and then she consistently did it but she told me what she was going to do it was a social contract um which brings me on a little bit to andy keeling so Andy Keeling, wonderful, wonderful person who fully empowered me, not in the same way that Sheena. He sent me off, he separated me from the unit, sent me off to South Armagh to do something completely different to what the unit in Belfast was doing, um, which was a sign of great trust. But the social contract he put in place with me when I first started the job, for which I was not qualified, by the way, I was selected because somebody else didn't get there, somebody else dear to both of us, <laughs> Um so I was son of in this job by default. And he said, Rob, you are my expert and I will always take your advice apart from when I do not take your advice. <laughs> um, he said, the reasons for that are that I'll know more than you do and I'll be in a position to make a decision that you can't possibly make. But I will always come back and explain why when I've got the time. And that's exactly what he did. So in both of those examples, mm. they're being proactive in telling me how they're going to behave. And then they behave exactly how they say they're going to behave. This um, is your proactive versus reactive leadership, isn't it? Well, it's part of it. Yeah. I mean, my my experience with organisations has been um, not recently throughout my time with them that I observe people interpreting leadership as a reactive pastime. Um, so what makes people successful as junior leaders is probably more reactive by by virtue of the job that they do than proactive. But the more senior we get, the more I would pay people to sit in the corner and have a quiet think about what they were going to do next. Um, by dint of our experience and the organisational design and the circumstances in which we find ourselves, I think people are reacting to circumstances as opposed to shaping the future. So I love that expression the Americans use about shaping the battlefield. Mm-hmm. Um, or, often in my experience being shaped by the battlefield in reaction social contracting is one way to avoid that um doing what you say you're going to do so that's about the relationship this is how our relationship will be what do you expect what do i expect how do we want it to be and then what are we actually trying to achieve task-wise and they're quite different things really interesting and 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 i love you've mentioned it a few times now the uh, this idea of the social contract uh, Sheena, uh, who I have met, and a very impressive lady. Um, but also I think of uh, Richard Dannett, uh, Lord Dannett now, 
uh, as my commanding officer, he was very keen on the psychological contract with people and also uh, the military covenant that, that we're going to go to Iraq, Afghanistan, wherever it might be. We're going to fight for the country and the protection of the country and doing what the government wants us to do. But you've got to look after us, our families and our men and women, when they get injured and they lose legs or limbs or get killed, look after us in return. That's all we ask in this this covenant. And, yeah. and I think all too often people don't keep the social contract, the psychological contract or the covenant. I don't know what your thoughts are. Yes, I don't think we exercise the muscle to be able to keep it because we haven't often had the conversation in the first place. So I um, speak to people about this idea of a social contract. And at best, people remember from school or university, the social contract being something the government agrees with its people. It's not something I agree with my people. So the whole idea becoming more popular now of having a team charter that everybody signs on to, which includes the why, the how and the what. Um, why do we exist? Purpose. Um, what are we here to witness? Sorry, how are we going to behave? Values. And what are we actually doing? And agree all that up front. But that can be done at the individual level. It can be done at the organizational level. It can be done at the cross organizational level, the cross international level. So my interest really is in really ensuring we get the most senior people possible with the biggest impact possible doing these things. Hence my preference for working with senior leadership teams in organizations. Um, hmm. And when they, when they do it, providing we keep it simple, it actually works. I, I can't believe that people actually pay me to talk about this stuff because it's so simple. Uh, well, yes, um, it's simple, but it's not easy. Uh, as someone equally simple but not simplistic. Yeah, yeah. Everything should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. But I, I think it's 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 simple and you understand it and you you feel somewhat slightly guilty when you're uh being paid lots of money to do it. But I think the skills that you've learned over many years in combat and on operations and all the training allows it to make so much sense to you. They they've probably invested in the 14 years and your time the Royal Marines, um, pr probably about half a million pounds in your development, easily. And and yeah. yet, in the businesses that you and I are working with, if they spend £10,000 on someone's development, they go, oh, it's a lot of money. Not sure we want to spend that kind of money. And so they go, well done, Rob, you're promoted into this new job. Uh, get on and become the CEO. And you go, you know, is there a six-month, 12-month program? No, 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 just get it, you know, go and crack on. And so they, they go in there, with very little help. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I see it all the time. And of course, that induces the low level of threat we were talking about. And if we look at the uh, the neuroscience, mm -hmm. we can prove it. <laughs> this is what is happening in your brain when you say something this way to somebody and their brain versus mm -hmm. saying this way to somebody. So for me, the protection lies in um, deep, deeply helping people to understand what a practice is. So in the Marines, we didn't have the option. The practice was forced upon us. Yeah. Whereas how can we help people to understand that discipline is simply a habit and a routine? So if you want to learn something, you don't have to practice a difficult conversation whilst you're having a difficult conversation. Practice it in your head using simple tools. Practice it with somebody in a non-threatening thing. Simulate it, but do it once a week until it becomes subconsciously competent. Um, so I think we can we can make people effective. Yeah, yeah, no, that's really good. Well, um, 
you, you met very inspired leaders. You, you people find you like uh, you know Rob is uh, so Jim uh, Hutton is uh, an inspired leader himself, and we were at Staff Coast together as you know, and and he he said you know you you're a truly inspiring leader, and you're inspiring others through through the training and the development you're doing with them, and please keep up that work. It's essential. Um, what's made you into the leader? I and others are experienced today, Rob, as they listen to this podcast and they watch it on YouTube. Um, growing up, who were this kind of role models? Were parents, were the grandparents, were the teachers? Before you got into the Royal Marines, it, you must have been shaped a lot. Just give us a, a quick thumbnail in a few minutes of, of your yeah, life. Yeah, look, I'll try, I'll try and keep it brief and I'll try and bring some values to the table as we go. So if we do go back slightly chronologically, not necessarily the right way to tell the story, but chronologically, I was born in a a mill village in Yorkshire, but my dad was the doctor, so I was the silver spoon in the mouth. He turned which, which village? Which village? Uh, Pool in Wharfdale is the. Village. I know Pool in Wharfdale. I I've been walking up in the in that area uh, because I was I'm an Halifax lad, so oh, Pool right. in Wharfdale I know well. Yes, yes. Well, it's uh, in the good old days. It was just a mill village with supported by two council estates. Very other, very little other development going on. So I was the kind of wealthy doctor's son. Whether that was true or not remains to be seen. Um. But I, so I went to a I went to a grammar school. I went to Bradford Grammar School. I mm. there with a, you know, the start of the immigration movement into Bradford. So I played cricket with Indians and Pakistanis and Bengalis. Um, but when I came back to the village, I was wearing my school uniform. So I had to learn to live and love and fight with the local youth. Um, now, why is that important? I think it's given me the the greatest gift that anybody can give you, which is to be able to mix with people from all different backgrounds and be reasonably comfortable. I do occasionally get imposter syndrome myself, but um, mixing with all the different backgrounds, literally from one side of the river to the other side of the river. So that was part of it, which is a value today, which I, which I really appreciate in terms of the diverse groups of people that I meet. Um, just one story about my dad, profound influence. You know, I left home at 17, went to university and started getting letters from my dad. Um, and I got a letter every week from my dad uh, for the rest of his life. Wow. <laughs> so he died a few years ago at the age of 88. Um, the final letter arrived as he had his heart attack in the grounds of the cricket field. Um, perfect way to die. So what is the point of all of that? It's he invested very heavily, not only in me, and I found out wow. later he sent the people letters as well. So the only thing I wanted was his pen at the end of the uh, the end of his life. And I actually got his fountain pen, which turned out to be a gift that my mother had given him in 1950 something. Um, so deeply, deeply moving. And I've kept the second half of those letters. But my assumption was everybody had a similarly loving family. They didn't. Uh, no, no. Well, well, that is so interesting. And I, as you're saying that, I'm thinking to my two daughters who are now 29 and 30 and one's just got married a couple of weeks ago and the other one's going to get married in three weeks time. They've got lovely uh, husband and fiance. Uh, and I was thinking, perhaps I should start writing letters. I mean, you, you have emails and you have texts, but it's lost. And 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 we had a family reunion, the Perks family reunion, just this weekend. We do it every about every four years or so. And you know, Thomas Edgar Perks, my grandfather, killed in 1943 when his aircraft uh, flew into a hillside where he was an inventor for the war office, on his way to see his son, who was 21 in the Royal Air Force as a pilot. And and you know, 
you want this information. Now you're older. We're at the stage where we're interested. When you're younger, you're not that interested. But when you're older, you really are. Um, thinking all these experiences you had, take yourself back to when you were 16 to 18 years old, Rob. What bit of advice would you give to the young Rob Metcalf, which is suitable for others who've got you know sons and daughters at this age? This matters. This doesn't. From your experience and all your life experience, what would you what advice would you give to uh, a young 16 to 18 year old? Look, I'd say uh, using that equation again, stimulus plus, no, who was it said it? Nietzsche said it, I think he said uh, between, he wouldn't have used stimulus and response, but this was a sense of it. It's between stimulus and response lies a gap and in the gap lies freedom. So let me illustrate what I mean. I decided very wisely at the age of 16 to leave home and go and do something uh, to leave home, leave school, and go and become a police cadet, actually. And I said, that's what I'm going to do to my dad without really giving him the option. But all he did was ask a question. And in the uh, the question, he created a pause. And in that pause lay the freedom to not make the decision that I was about to make. But I made lots of stupid decisions on the way. For example, drinking after a game of cricket instead of going to bed the night before my English A level, which I was supposed to get an A in, and I really didn't get an A. And of course, those little moments change your life. So um, take that pause, but don't mollycoddle your kids. Let them let them do what they need. <laughs> let them do what they need to do. Um, which I was very fortunate. Mm. I talk about values for a minute. You've just stimulated a thought in me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I was talking to my son about this this morning. So I was talking about values. And I have been guided by values that I know I've got, which were bred into me. Um, but then later on in life, I said, well, how do I actually enjoy spending my time? And I really enjoy spending my time in things like the wilderness, which I was allowed to do as a child, which is where these thoughts just come from. So if I articulate wilderness as a value and then use it to guide some of my decision making, as a result of deciding that late in life, I flew my dad down to New Zealand, and we went and walked the mountains in New Zealand. I would never have done that unless I'd thought, how do I really love spending my time? And I love spending my time in the wilderness. And my mm -hmm. Marines career is basically a wilderness career. Mm -hmm. So there's a, and my son raised another interesting point. So there are those values you don't even know you have. And in wartime, that's what you're going to find out about. So you realize that somewhere primeval, is uh, uh, more values that will emerge under the right circumstances. So we talk in a trite way about values, but it's not mm. trite. No, it, it, it comes it comes from your experiences. Uh, and, and in your experiences, if you look back, what's been one of your darkest moments and what did you learn from that, Rob? And look, some of them are external, some of them are internal. My external one is an obvious one. So I had a headache. I was about to fly to Papua New Guinea, I thought, I better see the GP. I didn't have a GP. I went to the local health centre, described my symptoms, and she said, don't like it. So one hour later, I found out, well, I didn't find out, actually, it was a little bit after that, but I had a scan which revealed a brain tumour. Um, I then was told you will have chemo, radio, you will probably not work again. And I pretty much thought that's it, because I'd seen, I'd seen the scan, I thought I'm going to die here. On the Tuesday, that was three days later, a doctor called Michael Biggs, neurosurgeon, took the tumour out, proved to be um, proved to be benign. 
and I was fine. But in the moment, in the moment, it was really interesting because I kind of went through all the grieving process quite quickly. I then more or less said, you know, people talk about fighting and I thought, nah, that's it. What an interesting journey I've had. I'm, I'm banging out next week. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really have to worry anymore. Uh, how, so long, was, how long ago was that, Rob? That was 2006. So, you know, touch wood still. Uh, and and was it? Did they drill into your brain, or what? Did they, how did they do it? Yeah, they do it through three little. Well, I don't know exactly how they did it, but face down, they operate on the back of your head, and I can still feel a little hole in my head here. Um, they've got to extract the thing without actually bursting any blood vessels because that's what causes damage. Anyway, they managed to do all of that. Um, I do remember waking up and they asked me questions which might amuse you. They said, the three people in the room, what day is it? I said, Tuesday. Who's that? My daughter, Sophie. Who's that? My daughter, Kelly. And who's that? Pointing at my wife. I said, Mrs. Thatcher. Um, uh, no, nobody really found that amusing. And she'll hate that I've told you that story. <laughs> and what was um, the other the other dark moment? Uh, look, the other dark moment is much more self-caused, based on fear-based decision-making. So shortly after that event, I was a little bit vulnerable at work. I lost a key player, a brilliant, a brilliant uh, consultant who was one of the people that I really valued in the business and was very valuable for the business. So I thought, I'm not surviving. The business might not survive without this guy. So I made a wrong hiring decision. I hired another incredibly smart individual. But in my gut, there was a cultural misfit. Um, but my fear-based decision-making based on the survival of my business said, no, we've got to do this. I've got to have some some, some resource and um, people in place. It wasn't a fair decision to that person. Uh, it wasn't a fair decision to everybody else in the business. Um, and it was a deeply fear-based decision that eventually caused a lot of damage to the business, to the individual concerned, uh, and to me. And I'm scarred by it. So if I can help people to avoid fear-based decision-making, then that is a good legacy. Yeah, it, it is interesting. And like you, I, I've made some fear-based decisions. Um, and looking back, I can't believe how stupid I was, but I learned lots of experience from it. Was it Mark Twain who said, I think I'm going to make some more mistakes because I learned so much from those uh, those mistakes, the experience I gained. Um but I do see it in business a lot that, that they're frightened of something. Uh, and it's like driving through a gap in a, a stone wall and you go, I mustn't hit the pillar. And it apparently draws you towards it because you're focusing on the pillar. You actually, oh, no, I've scraped the car. I said I wasn't going to do that. Um, well, let's go around. Uh, you've, you've obviously developed various um, different models of leadership. There are many thousands of them, Rob. Um, we, we found in the research, my wife Lee and I, that... Uh, Spiral Leadership's our theme, obviously, it's uh, this podcast, and and the eight elements are interested just to hear your views. So moral quotient, uh, it, it values is something you've talked about a lot in your upbringing. Uh, it's helped you in many a scrape. But what is your tip to people when you, what did you do when you let your values slip? And how did you get yourself back on track to live your values? Yeah, look, I don't know that we ever live them 100%, do we? So... I was going to quote a little bit of uh, Jim Collins, a book called Built to Last. He's more famous, I think, for, for uh, good to great. But in Built to Last, he talks about he talks about the power of purpose and the permanence of your why. Why being purpose and values and goals being more transitory. You can achieve your goals, but values and purpose remain the same. And we never achieve them. So you just change the balance 
of the amount of time you do spend achieving them. So I articulated a purpose around uh, a legacy of leadership, which was our business purpose for a long time. Um, and whenever we strayed away from that, we found ourselves coming back to it. And that, I think, is a great anchor point for anybody who's dealing with complex times. Know your purpose, know your values, know your why. I like to use little expressions that can change lives. Um, and one of these was, are you on the planet to do something or for something to do? Um, and I think if we can remind ourselves of that, that's great. So on days when I've had a bad day, I might have done, you know, I might have delivered something badly or had a bad interaction. Then I uh, say to myself, pick up one more piece of litter than you drop every day. And if I haven't done anything else, then I get myself recentered literally by picking up a piece of litter. And if we all did that, there is no more litter. Um, so as a metaphor for how you want to leave any interaction, it's not a bad one. Mm. Um Mm. I like that. I like that. And and in fact, you've answered in some ways that because they're so they're so closely aligned from your vision and your values, your moral quotient to your purpose quotient, your meaning and purpose. And you've already talked about that. So I won't cover that one now. But let's talk about health and well-being. It's mattered deeply to you throughout your your raw marine time. And you and I have talked about how we keep ourselves fit and healthy in our 60s um and and this idea of uh having a health span that matches a lifespan sadly my late mother-in-law her her lifespan um sorry her health span ended about 10 years before her lifespan and she had a lot of illness in the last 10 years of her life uh which is what i aspire not to do i hope i just a bit like bit like your dad uh, the moment that he passed out in the cricket grounds i just want to go like that you know like hell what a rhyme that's it no 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 uh no certainly or it was i think it was blaster bates who was a demolition expert and he he said he wanted to climb one of his chimneys that he used to bring down and just press the detonator on it and blow the chimney up and go down with his own chimney uh no 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 long illness but um this this whole area i know means a lot to you um particularly with the, having the, the brain tumour and things like that, it, it brings it very front of mind, 2006. What's your tip about physical health and about um, mental health, brain health, particularly relevant, um, that you'd give to people listening, if there was a top tip you'd give uh, on those two? Yeah, look, I think on both fronts, always have an experiment running. Um, give you an example from a mental health point of view. Again, quite inspiring story, friend of mine, uh, Another inspiring leader, my old boss, fell off a cliff, broke his back, had a bit of spinal column left, learned how to drive, well, drove again, and eventually got himself a motorbike. And bear in mind, he has no feeling in his feet. And the next day I heard, he's come to Australia and he's driving his motorbike through the middle of the desert. So I thought, you know what? That is inspiring. I am, I am going to run an experiment. Um, my experiment was, I'm going to learn how to ride a motorbike. If I like it, I'll carry on. And if I don't, I won't. Um, that was the experiment which has resulted in an enormous amount of pleasure but learning as well i'm a much better driver for doing it and i feel confident and fantastic that i've learned the new skill at the age of 65 and i'm quite sensible on mm. the bike so far so always have an experiment running i think is a great thing to do my physical experiment at the moment um in addition to some quite deep disciplines for example indian clubs i do indian clubs which is just a mixture of coordination and weight dating back a long way historically quite interesting but that started as an experiment which i loved i've carried on doing it but the current experiment is based on wim hof uh, yes 
yeah. the cold water guy. So um, it's in the evening here in Australia. So in preparation for our meeting, I had a couple of minutes under a freezing cold shower to uh, give myself the dopamine hit that I needed to give. My, and I did some deep breathing as well. And well, well, well done. Well, of course, uh, before I came and joined you on this podcast, I took the, the both my dogs, the, the Cocker Spaniels, for a run. Um uh, I don't go too far these days because uh, as we get into our 60s, we've got to watch the um, the inflammation that comes from too much running over the years that we've done. But in later life, it ain't so good for us. So I just do a couple of miles, uh, three or four Ks. Um, but I came back and then I had the hot tub with my uh, my stepson. He's a police officer. He, he had some time off. The kids are at nursery. We're looking after them all. They're living with us for a year. But we just sat in the hot tub together, had a lovely chat. And then I went into the cold plunge. I've got this cold pod, but I, I can't make it quite cold enough. But I go from 40 degrees down to um, maybe 18 degrees. Now, that's not very cold, but th there's that that delta change, that, that cold difference. And I notice it. I feel it when I get in and I get the buzz from it and I'm raring to go. What, what's the, what's your advice from what you've researched about Wim Hof? Does it have to be ice floating in the in the thing to get the benefits? I don't, I think, don't it does. think so. I did do a bit more research. There's a guy called Andrew Huberman who does a three-hour podcast on all matters neurological, and he's done one specifically on cold water. And there's a lot of science behind it now. And his wisdom, I can't remember it exactly, so please don't take this as science dear listener uh, but i think he says 11 minutes a week of cold water and it doesn't have to be um it doesn't have to be an ice bath um, yeah. but it gives you the equivalent hit without any of the downside of the same amount of dopamine that you would get from a you know cocaine hit mm. so it does make you feel good no doubt oh the, yeah i'm buzzing i'm buzzing yeah and the science so he was saying he was saying 11 minutes per week not each time it has to be 11 minutes it could be a couple of minutes yeah. yeah, absolutely. And the advice is get out of the cold shower. Don't warm it up again before you get out. So Correct. Self, That's it. self warm. Yes, uh, exactly. Anyway, yeah. Apart from anything else, it's an experiment. It may not last, but yeah. it's fun and it's interesting and it sort of keeps us alive. Okay. I think to be really serious for a minute, though, I think my only ambition is to, I call it the purple line of peace. I occasionally do a what we call a life map. And my yes. goal at the end of the day is just to have peace of mind. And as a kid, I was kind of like this. Um, and I am now sort of wavering. And hopefully by the time I have my car park event, whatever that looks like, maybe on a motorbike, um, I'll be at peace with the world. Yeah. And if you look at the free divers, if you look at the thing we were talking about earlier in terms of the deepest breath, that excellent Netflix documentary, they say the key to it is to be deeply peaceful. Mm. I love that. Yeah, no, great. Thank you for that. Um, Rob, the other one I was going to ask you, I, I, I interviewed Oscar Tromboli the other day who wrote the book. It's just over my shoulder, but people can't see it on the podcast, which is um, how to listen. Um, what, what has been your skill, Rob, in learning how to listen? Yeah, clear your head before you start. I think uh, another quote from somebody wise who said, the quieter I am, the more I hear. Um and again, quoting Sheena, she said, ask a question and do not be the next person to speak, was one of the pieces of wisdom she gave me. And the other one was ask a question and wait six seconds. So rather like a Royal Marines Bergen, we tend to fill it with stuff that you don't actually need. Um, and I think the art of listening is about not filling the silence with stuff that you don't need. So learn how to ask 
great questions. They start with a W. Rudyard Kipling's Seven Honest Men, I think. What and why and how and who and where and when. Um, so ask a question and shut up, I think, is the, the key. And then you know, the, skill, the skill of listening we can talk about, but actually the presence. I think if we can learn to be present, fully present, then we will notice things even when they're not being said. And when I failed to do that, it's cost me a lot of either social capital or financial capital mm. because I have picked up on the clues and the cues because my mind has not been quiet. No, it, it's really great wisdom in what you've just said there, particularly Kipling, Six Honest Serving Men and True. I, I tend to use that almost if I'm doing an offsite or something like that. I'll just run through those questions and I've, I've pretty much got the format of how to run an event for them. And I, I find that very helpful. Um, the next one is we call CQ, Collaborative Cultural and Cognitive Intelligence. Um, it's almost like, how do you get on with people who are most different from you? And you've had lots of experience from Eurasian colleagues playing sport with them when you're at Bradford Boys Grammar, which I, a lot of my friends went there. So I'm sure there might be an overlap. And, um, and also the boys in pool in Wharfdale. So, and then Somalia and Iraq and everywhere else. How, how do you get on with people who are most different from you? Yeah, look, I think the first thing is difference is mainly in our head. I think uh, you know, if we look at the science, we like people who are like us, don't we? That is the what the science tells us. So if you understand that, then how can you help people to be more like us? Because we all, my observation is over many, many years, and I wish I'd understood it earlier, is that basically we are all regardless of religion, regardless of colour, regardless of location, regardless of, not quite regardless of age. Um, but we have some areas of, of commonality. So if we take the time to connect. So for example, if I am running a programme in Somalia, which I'll do, the first people into the room will get my undivided attention, regardless of the fact that I've got to start talking in a minute and a half's time, just to try and find that little bit of common ground. So I don't think people care how much you know until they know how much you care. So the authenticity with which you ask those questions about them and reveal vulnerably, confidently, but vulnerably reveal a bit about you, and then you build that common ground. So we often get the feedback, myself and the, uh, the Ugandan lady who is a particularly special facilitator, we get the feedback that people do not generally, in, in our role, display vulnerability. But as soon as we do, that trust is 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 built. Um, but the vulnerability has to be displayed confidently, not needily. So be prepared to say who you really are. Get your get your inner game on the outside for a change, and let people see it. There's some real gems in there, but that last one, get your inner game on the outside, um, it is very true. And I'm just making a note now. Um, the Inner Game of Tennis uh, by Tim Galway. I, I, Tim's very old now, but I, I had a, a fascinating conversation with him about The Inner Game, which is all his, his, his book and his work. And a lot of people, Olympians and others, have taken his work from many years ago uh, as a very important one. And, and also that truism that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care i i think 
as a as a philosophy is really important. And funny enough, it was a newsletter I was just writing the other day, linked to the book Spies by Calder Walton, about you know being deceived at work and in business, and people spying es- industrial espionage, but also the Soviets and the Chinese are doing massive amounts of spying in most of the European and American and Australian countries, and we're just not aware of just how how much is going on. The, the, the paradox of, on the one hand, the likes of you and I are encouraging people to be open and to be appropriately vulnerable, not just throwing themselves on the ground, sobbing and banging their hands like some four-year-old. Uh, I've seen a few examples of that with my one and two-year-old as they uh, grandchildren as they're here. Um, but on the other hand, we've got to verify trust, but verify. We've got to we've got to put some process in place and two levels of authentication, all this kind of stuff, and, and be aware of your identity being stolen. How, how do you reckon we should get this, this paradox and live with it? On the one hand, being as open as you can be. On the other hand, don't be naive with your business or your military secrets. Well, what's your thoughts, Rob? Yeah, look, I think the word paradox is an interesting word. Paradox and dilemma. So dilemmas cannot be addressed, but paradoxes can. Um so it's a bit like doing and being, isn't it? We can have a process, but we can also either follow it or not. There's a doing and a being element. So I would stand accused of being delightfully naive when it comes to people, um, because my assumption is always that people live on the good side. And my experience is if we can have a contract that starts off with a W1, by that I mean a where are we, what are we trying to achieve together and why, if we can agree that much, and we can agree the expectations we have of each other at the front, it very quickly becomes clear whether or not people are prepared to live by that. And their authenticity becomes revealed, not by their current vulnerabilities, but by their initial commitment. So if we can work out a commitment to which we're both agreeing on, then I'm really happy to be vulnerable but not needy because we learn from others' mistakes. Why would we bother to learn from our own when we can learn from other people's so let's get the ground rules in place which minimize the amount of damage caused by my naivety and following the process removes the effects of my personality which are delightfully naive i hope well i i I join you on that one um you run a lot of uh leadership events around the world for top teams um I'm always interested in, you know, best practice and what goes on. And particularly, I've got about five offsites with teams around the world in a couple in America, uh, Portugal, Europe, London. What, what do you do to build trust between a CEO and a, a top executive team when when it's pretty low? There's not the psychological safety because maybe the CEO is the smartest man or woman in the room. And the others are constantly trying to impress them and second guess what the CEO is thinking. And they might say they're delegating and empowering and elevating people, but they still get involved in trying to solve their problems. What, what's a, a good technique you found that, to build trust, a practical exercise with a team? Yeah, look, I think um, when I ask people in teams, particularly at the senior level, where the cost is high of answering questions, honestly, um, when you ask them why they exist, as a team they often don't know so i think part of the answer is to say well let's really work out why we exist as a team um that's a practical exercise that can be run i think the the other bit that i picked up from uh i can't remember the name of the book but wageman and noons i think were the people who wrote it 
They said that real teams must do real work together. And if they do not do real work together, then there's no reason to be a team. And in the doing of that real work, real personalities evolve. The work that the teams do must be work that only that team can do. And so my experience is that they'll focus in on strategy, they might focus in on culture, but they must do it together. So if I wear the red shirt of sales through the week, then I need to put on my blue shirt with the rest of the executive team when I go into this meeting. And in doing that real work together, you soon find out who is who is who in the zoo, um, because the opportunity to pretend is no longer there. Um, so that would be my that would be my tip for teams. And so few of them are doing it. Most of the meetings that I come across that people have routinely in their normal cadence, they're not working meetings, they're reporting meetings. Um, and people would rather be doing something else. So get yeah. them to do real Yeah, I remember when I was a managing director in a PLC myself and uh, the old concept that my own team was the one I cared a lot about. We had a sense of purpose. We were all, in our case, we were all doing leadership coaching and board development. But I was very frustrated when I had to go and join the other five managing directors and report to the CEO and the CFO. And uh, they would play us off against each other. And they'd go, well, Jonathan, last week you were a hero with your numbers. You've done very well. But this week you're a bit of a zero. But Graham, well done. This week you're the hero. Jonathan's a zero. And of course, then he goes, we'd like you to all collaborate and work together and, you know, cross sell. We're going, sod that. You know, because you're going to compare us all and we're put in a ranking depending on what we do. I've even known some executive search, big global firms give work to a rival company because they know they're being ranked against them and their bonuses depend on the rank order they have. They'll give work away in another sector to somebody else rather than their own company in order that they 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 because of the competition. Um, so I, I really relate to to what you say. Any any thoughts that come up for you from that that shocking story? It's the whole philosophy of why do workplaces exist. So yeah, my um, my thinking on my my first company is I just want that to carry on forever because it's a great place for people to work. And if that's the premise upon which we set up a business, not just to make the profit we need to make to create the great place to work, but actually the reason we are here is to to make it that place which everybody wants to be at. So I want that first business of mine to stay in existence forever because they do great work and they really they really do look after their people and develop them well. And it's a fantastic place to get the peace of mind we were talking about. Mm. Uh, if our premise is all about my uh, profit, we end up, I don't know if you've followed the, the case in the consulting world in Australia recently, were a massive scandal with one of the big uh, consulting firms who were advising the government, but also on their tax policy and then advising their clients how to avoid it. Um, so the day the tax policy was released <laughs> was the day that the clients put in their kind of counter strategy to counter the so they were playing both ends off against the middle and they got found out and it's and they they can't work in australia anymore i seem to remember the com the company it's really yeah. sunk it's really yeah. sunk they had to close i think they sold that consultancy for a penny or the equivalent of a a dollar well, well, it's still playing out in the court so there's probably more than one example but if that's the premise upon which we set up businesses for our personal aggrandizement then i'm afraid that is not the business that i necessarily want to be supporting so again we have freedom of choice with who yeah. we work with
I saw that with the investment banks and the CDO swaps and synthetic CDOs and all this uh, AAA rated um, product they were selling, which was actually a pile of dung. And, you know, getting the, the rating agency, giving them AAA scores. And everybody was just in this big game. Uh, they didn't care what they did as long as they sold as many mortgages as they could, even though they were um, subprime and the people would have no chance of paying them. Uh, there's a lot of people that I've come across who do that. Uh, so that's a, a bit of a shocker. We, we've just got a, a few more minutes left, Rob. But one other thought um, came up from what you said in in those practical questions about why do we exist as a team that I, I've come across some of these offsites where they have an offsite and I go, are you a team or are you a group? A team has a common purpose, as you're saying, you know, this is why we're here and we only, we can do this task together or are you just a loose group because you happen to have a boss and you will report to her or to him. And a number of them have said, we're just a group. We're not really a team. We don't have a combine and, and therefore it makes it particularly hard to get them to see this team as their first team and their own team as their second team. And they go, well, I just, you know, and this was what I had when I was in that uh, consultancy and that we were being played off against each other. I really just, my only focus was on my team. I, I'm ashamed about it. I didn't see playing to the bigger, the bigger team and the bigger organization because we were just a loose group being played off against each other. Any, any thoughts from Europe just before we move yeah, on? Yeah, look, to... I think, I don't, I don't actually mind people being a loose group. Um, as long as they acknowledge it. So let's just not pretend to be a team if we don't need a team. We only need a team where there is common work to be done, which only we can do. Um, now we can either create that because we've been thoughtful enough to say this is going to be really useful, or we can not think about it hard enough and create something that is not useful. And of course, mm -hmm. we then end with clients um, with, um, with compliance. So we turn up for meetings because we turn up for meetings. Mm. And I don't think it only goes to teams, it goes to processes. We invent a process, performance management processes are typical. Um, and the process may be a good process, but it's not used. It's only used for compliance. So if we're just a team and we're complying, we're bound to end up with a vacuum of utility, which is filled by the things you're talking about, filled with... Mm just useless but things that take it backwards yeah um, yeah so so true uh there's there's great wisdom in in all that you're sharing thank you for this rob um last couple of questions then we'll do your your top leadership tip um with that this whole concept about teams um and groups and where they have a sense of purpose and are they really committed to to something are they fully all in or are they just complying uh, someone once said quite bluntly you can't be a little bit pregnant you're either full in or you're not, but you can't pretend you're halfway there. Um, what about toxic teams or toxic individuals? What what have you done personally as a leader or what have you helped others to do when you've got an individual or a whole team that's gone toxic? How do you turn it around? Yeah, look, I think um, what I've done sometimes, I've done very badly but I have extracted, I have extracted the tooth. Um, I think there's a there's a an important point to be made here about leadership, which is taking people to organizational objectives willingly, you know, helping them to achieve organizational and personal objectives willingly, which is where some of the things we've talked about comes in. There is management, which comes from the French word man maintenance, controlling, uh, putting the systems and so on in place. But the forgotten art of command. 
uh, sometimes seen as a dirty word, I think is an important thing to bring out here. So I, if I'm the boss and I have a toxic team, I'm saying uh, you either, you're either in or you're out, but this is not a consensus-based decision. You need to be, and I don't mind if you don't turn up for the meetings, but if you do turn up, you've got to be present. So I think being prepared to take command of a situation is a is a part of leadership which we we should not forget. Um, yes, uh, not just an entitled. It's not just what you're entitled to do. It's what you're expected to do. Yeah, I, I think as my old sergeant major bluntly said in good military speak, which you'd respect, but forgive the listeners uh, that sir, this person he's either inside the tent pissing out or he's outside the tent pissing in. But I think he's outside the tent pissing in and I think we should do something about him. Uh, and it's a pretty grim analogy. But you, as you say, you've got to extract the tooth. And people, uh, time and again, particularly CEOs, go, do you know what, looking back, I, I hung on too long in making the decision to remove them. I was trying to give him another chance and I didn't want to upset them because he was a friend of mine. I'd bring, you know, I've known him for, you know, 15 years, but actually I should have acted quickly. And I, I think someone told me that the old adage of be firm in the decision, be kind in the execution, how you help them find their happiness elsewhere. Look, and I think there's a point, a really important point to make because done skillfully, with the right level of social capital created early enough, we understand what each of our team members is trying to achieve at the personal level with their life, with their career. And we've helped them to think that through. Now, almost certainly, if they're not performing well in any aspect of their job, whether it's to do with the team or elsewhere, they're not acting in their own interests. So we can give feedback that looked like, remember, this is what you told me you wanted. Well, in what way is that piece of behavior contributing to that? So there's a piece of that social capital where the interest is gathered at the point that it needs to be gathered whether that's positive or, or or otherwise i think that's part of it and then if we've got the skill to follow a process that looks like here are the facts why is this happening um, i'm going to tell you i'm disappointed or whatever i'm feeling i am now going to say if this carries on there will be consequences i then exercise the consequences that is not what people sometimes do. They yeah. get emotional. The, um, you know, the chimp takes over, and, and if you've got a if you've got a chimp in charge, then you're going to go straight to the consequences and do it badly. Yeah, yeah. So very true. Uh, you've you've talked about the chimp paradox. Talked about various other things. That there's no doubt about it. You are very widely read, Rob. Uh, I can just see where you're drawing on such a, a wealth of personal experience. And added to that, the research and the interest you keep having to keep current. What's your top book that you recommend lately that you've been reading or you think is good? And, and why would you recommend people listening listen to? Yeah, look, um, it might be a, a hard one for some to, to get to. But I, I'm a great believer in the neuroscience these days because all mm -hmm. those things we thought worked, we it was a belief. I think neuroscience is really helping to prove that it actually does work. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a, a great book by an Australian called The Brain at Work, um, which is one way to access this. A more, a more for my personal interest, uh, a, a, another way of approaching the same topic is a book by Rick Hansen, who's a neuroscientist and a Buddhist, and he calls it something like Buddha's, Buddha's Brain, the Practical Neuroscience. Uh, and it gives some very practical tips on how to you know, use your brain to best effect. 
Yeah, so that's there's a couple, a couple of books there which are neuroscience based. The Chimp Paradox is brilliant. <laughs> yeah. So so accessible. Name yeah. your chimp is a great tip. Name yeah, that's book. right. Yeah, Peters, isn't it? Somebody Peters. I've forgotten his first name, but um, yeah, um, very, Stephen. Professor Stephen. Yeah. Very very good. Um, so thank you. Brain at work and Buddha's brain, practical neuroscience. I, I'm with you on that. So um, what fun we have had. Thank you, Rob. Let's uh, end with, would you introduce yourself again uh, so people know who you are, your experience you've had in the past and, and what you're doing now, and then your top two minute leadership tip. Uh, yes. Uh, thanks, Jonathan. So I am Rob Metcalf. I live in Australia. I'm clearly a POM and I'm a Brit originally. Um, drawing on my military experience, I have been working in the world of uh, leadership for the last oh, 30, 30 odd years, um, currently working with the UN and other organizations around the world. My top leadership tip is to do whatever you want, but know what you're doing. Uh, I've used that in the podcast. What do I mean by that? I mean, take a pause and make your choices conscious. It may only be a 10 second pause, but experience indicates that you will be more creative, more proactive, less reactive, and uh, the consequences will be more favorable if you do that. So there is my top tip. Do whatever you want, but know what you're doing. A quote from somebody else, which I have stolen, but I love it. Life-changing. Yeah. Well, well, thank you for that, Rob. It's been fabulous having you on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. There's a wealth of experience that people can tap into. And um, I know I've taken a lot from this, and I'm sure many of our listeners and those watching YouTube have taken a lot away as well. So good luck with the continued work you're doing and uh, safe travels to Somalia. Thank you very much indeed, Jonathan. Much appreciated. Thank you for listening. We hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know, so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.